This is The Weekly on C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. There have been five Democratic presidential debates, and the sixth one is scheduled for December 19th. It will be airing on PBS. But this question, are the debates having an impact? And does the current format still work? There's a recent Political Magazine article suggesting 10 ways to literally blow up the debate format. One suggestion, have John Donvan moderate. He's with us just ahead, but first from September of 1960, here is how the first televised presidential debates began. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon, and the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy. That from September 1960, 59 years ago, and John Donvan, who is the host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates, you're saying nearly six decades later, these debates seem, quote, awfully stale. Why? Because they're not really debates. Um, you're not watching what in what are now today called debates. Um, this season, the Democratic uh, candidates and... Um, four years ago, watching the Republicans try to do the same sort of thing, and then in the interim, the actual so-called debates between um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, they're not actually functioning as debates. They're structured more, I would say, as side-by-side press conferences in which um, reporters are asking questions of one individual at a time and turning to another candidate and asking a separate question and then turning to a third candidate and asking another question – and each candidate answers a question and to some degree might parry with the question or the questioner, but doesn't really develop an idea. It doesn't have to prove anything. And they don't have to prove anything because there's nothing put on the table to prove. And to me, the essence of a debate is having to prove a point. It's it's taking a position and then saying, I'm going to stand by this position and I'm going to give you the reasons for it. I'm going to give you the logic behind it. I'm going to give you the... The, the data behind it, and I'm going to listen to your criticisms of that idea, and I'm going to try to parry them. That's what a debate is. And what we're seeing in the in the thing that we call debates now is nothing like that. It Again, it's it's something that the candidates can, can answers for, run out the clock on. And, and in fact, they don't even have to run out the clock. The amount of time given is so short that if they figure out how to fill up one minute with a blah, blah, blah answer, chances are the moderator's going to move on to somebody else, and they would never really have to be challenged in the position that they're taking. So that's why I I think they're stale, is because they don't actually function as debates. So in a piece that's available online at politico.com, among the recommendations, and we'll go through a few of them over the course of the next half hour, let me just uh, begin with these two, a single topic showdown and rethinking the moderators. The single topic showdown, I think, actually cites the, the suggestion is that they, the, 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 the writer, Virginia Heffernan, has been coming to our debates for this season and is inspired by them. And um, what we do at Intelligence Squared U.S. is a program that I've been working with since 2006. We've mounted now more than 170 debates in that time on a wide variety of topics from foreign policy to economic policy to cultural issues, religious issues, and we structure it in the Oxford format, and in the Oxford format, there's a single resolution and one team of debaters. We're almost always two against two. 
one team of two debaters has to prove that the resolution is correct and the other team has to prove that the resolution is incorrect. So that's what I think Virginia Heffern- Heffernan is referring to as single topic. Let's have a whole evening around one thing and let's explore that thing. And on the question of rethinking the moderators, I, I've had a lot of practice after 170 debates on figuring out how I want to moderate. And I, I, I flatter myself that I have figured out probably I'm getting better and better at it. So um, my feeling that my role as a moderator is – and this is controversial. I've, I've run into some criticism from friends in, in the press – is not for me to be challenging the debaters – uh, but to to get the debaters to debate better with each other on the points. And so what I do as a moderator is I listen very, very closely to what each side is saying, and I try to bring together the points of contention that merit deeper exploration. That really means keeping myself out of it. It means I'm not trying to... I'm not working up to a gotcha moment. I'm really not working as a journalist. I'm not trying to find or make news. If If news happens, that's great, but it's not... It's it's not essentially protecting the integrity of the debate, which is to get the two sides actually to explore an issue with one another. I, I, I don't want to criticize my fellow journalists whose function as moderators, but I don't think that they're really functioning as moderators. To, to a degree, yes, they're keeping time. There's some timekeeping elements to moderating. But for the most part, I find that they're trying to provoke newsworthy statements by the uh, by by the candidates to a degree they might be trying to buff up their own credentials as being you know uh, hard-nosed and diligent as a journalist all of which is good and I believe in hard-nosed and diligent journalists but um, they're not really in, in rare cases only are they really listening for points of contention between the two sides that said there was criticism I think of CNN a CNN panel earlier in this season did a debate in which they were picking out points of opposition between the two sides and setting them against each other. But the, but there was a, a sense that that was a sort of superficial they – were, they were looking for ma- nasty things they had said about each other and trying to provoke – uh, some back and forth. You know, John Delaney got a huge amount of of time, more than was merited by his likelihood of ever being elected, because he had a, a, attacked during the week before something that somebody else had said. And so they were in, the, in that situation were framed to get nasty at each other. That's not very satisfying. What what I try to listen to as a moderator is where do the ideas actually conflict? Where Where is there actually on each side a pretty powerful argument, but they're in opposition to each other? Let's dig into that. Let's put those in front of each other. And so as a moderator, I will ask a question of, a, of one side after listening to the opening arguments in which I've just heard that your opponents – uh, have made a, a, a strong case for why cheese sandwiches are better than chicken salad sandwiches, and they cited the impact on the environment. Do you buy that? What 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 do you think is the impact on the environment of cheese versus chicken salad? Can you dig into it? I, I would go with that, and and then I would hold them as soon as they tried to pivot to their talking point. That's another thing I do as a moderator. Is I I don't allow people to stray off off topic, which um, again uh, politicians are 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 practiced at turning the, the question to whatever it is they want to talk about. They do it constantly in the debates. Um, and uh, I, I also discourage personal attacks because that's really not what the issue is. So somebody might be a jerk. That doesn't mean they're wrong. So those are the things that I do as a moderator that I don't think is happening in the current debate system. So to that point, here's how you opened up one of your recent debates. 
They will argue two against two, for and against. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then the live audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. In round one, we have opening statements from each debater in turn. Round two is where the debaters address one another and take questions from me and from you in the live audience. In round three, we will have closing statements by each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each. And remember how you voted at the beginning of the debate, because immediately after their closing statements, you will vote a second time, and the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So does it work? By and large, yes. Um, and and, and I, here's how I gauge it. First of all, do I think that something really different happened on the stage and was and was worth listening to? Almost always, yes. There have been times when some debaters have not prepared. It's, it, by the way, they, they need to do homework on this. They need to figure out almost a chess, a sort of a chess match that if I'm going to make this argument, the other guy's probably going to say this, and how will I counter that? Um, what do I really believe? How far do I want to take the statement that's in the resolution? What do I think that resolution means? And that They have to give a lot of thought. And most of our debaters do. A few times, it's interesting, the more pundit identifiable somebody is the less homework they do they they tend to come in and try to wing it and they lose the debate almost always in that case and by lose i mean we ask the audience to vote on the resolution before and after the debate and we name a winner uh, as the team whose numbers have moved up the most in percentage point terms as i was just saying in the tape there um and so the teams that do the preparation that come in with data with the more persuasive arguments tend to be the ones that win and that by itself tells me that it's working on the level of the audience is being swayed by persuade, truly persuasive and logical argument. The other thing is just the audience. The audience, you know, it's it's it sounds as though it's going to be kind of a little too nutritional and medicinal or going to do a debate on foreign policy. Sounds like, you know, that's not going to be very sexy. It's really fun. The audience comes away really, really excited by a few things. One is... First of all, we set it up as a competition. That's controversial also, but we do set it up as a competition in that the audience votes is going to be a winner and a loser. Um, secondly, it gets really, really spirited. You see people have, with passionate views on things really get passionate about it. And there's something about that that's really gripping. But the third thing is, I believe that there's a, you know, in the same way that we all have a tick, a, a funny bone that can be tickled, we, that's why we respond to comedy, and we have a heart that can be touched, and that's why we respond to tragedy. I think there's a part of us that enjoys the experience of the light bulb going off in your head when, oh, I get it now. I get it. And so people in our audience, I think, have that experience of, I get it. And it's not just that they get uh, the idea, but they get the inkling that maybe maybe I'm wrong and I should change my mind. And that's, nobody's doing that these days. And we know that because the, we we have data on each debate. Every debate, people change their minds. And it's not, it's not our goal to change people's minds. Uh, we don't take a stand on one side or the other, but it's our goal to get them to listen. And if they're changing their minds, something's happened there. And I like to go out to the lobby afterwards and hang out with the people pouring out of the auditorium and they have had a great time they're buzzing and they you know i i one time i was with a friend of mine said i took the subway down and there were people in the subway car still arguing about the the resolution they were so turned on by it and and um i i just find that people find this thing that sounds like it's going to be nutritious and medicinal really really actually fun 
We have young people coming. We have people bringing dates. We, we, in fact, we've had uh, one couple. Um, we, 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 have a pod, we live on as a podcast. Uh, that's probably, I would say, our main distribution system, though we're on YouTube and we live stream. Um, but we got an email from this guy who said, you know, my girlfriend and I have different political points of view on a lot of things. And I want you to know that listening to your podcast has helped us work out our differences because we can now see why there's a reasonable argument on the other side. And it doesn't mean I agree with her, but but I can see that she's not crazy and and I can where she, I can see where she's coming from. And then he said, "It's we've so smoothed over our differences politically that I'm going to ask her to marry me. Could you please record a fake podcast opening in which the resolution, the proposition to be voted on is, I'm forgetting her name right now, let's just say it's Mary Jane. Mary Jane should marry Steve. So I, I wrote back and said, sure, I'll be happy to do that. And on the night that we taped the debate, I explained all this to the audience. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to announce a, a, a false or make-believe motion, but I'd like you all to applaud at the end. And so I recorded this thing like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Intelligence Square. Tonight, the resolution before us, Mary Jane should marry Steve. And the whole audience bursts into applause. <laughs> and so he surprised her in the kitchen one day. He said, oh, why don't we listen to a debate? He told me this afterwards because they came to a debate last year and told me the whole story. He, he, she was in the kitchen chopping vegetables or something. He said, oh, let's listen to a debate. And I come on with my voice going, this is John Donovan, Intelligence Squared U.S. Our resolution tonight, should Steve marry, should Mary Jane say yes when Steve proposes? And she just dropped the knife and <laughs> hugged him. But so there's... there's what way, a great story. Yeah, there's way more fun. Does it work was your question. I think it works because it's the people who get to it, to get in front of it and experience it are having a great time. And I think it's because of the light bulb going off experience that we're giving them. And Let, that's not stale. That's what's not stale. Let's talk about you for a moment. Born in Yonkers, graduate of Dartmouth. I was born in New York City, actually, but grew up in Yonkers. And okay. Yeah. Went to Dartmouth? Yeah. And worked for ABC and PBS. Just walk us through the trajectory of your career. After, at Dartmouth, I started working on the college radio station, which was, um, which was not, uh, it wasn't a journalism course. Um, Dartmouth so very traditional liberal arts and saw journalism as being too uh, career-oriented. So I, I was interested in a career in journalism, so I worked at the college radio station. And from there, I went to work, uh, graduated from school and went to work at a little radio station in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, as a one-man news department when I was 22. And uh, it was a, gr- a fantastic training experience. I'm not, I'm not even sure that those opportunities exist anymore, but there used to be radio stations that had news departments, and they would take a 22-year-old and pay him $9,000 a year to make a lot of mistakes on the air, which I did. But I learned a lot from that. And then I went to a, a very, very terrible t- unprofessional TV station in Poland Spring, Maine, where I made great friends and learned a lot, again, mostly from my own mistakes. And then I applied to journalism school at Columbia and was accepted there. And and while there, uh, as part of my acceptance, I, w- I won, was v- very fortunate to win a, uh, a fellowship with ABC to work for their London bureau for a summer. And I went to London and the journalism school. And then I went back to London and hung around uh, just... Uh, of kind of making myself useful uh, for not terribly long, about a month or so, until a job position opened up at a low entry level, and I got that job. And um, and one day, um, 
the guy who did radio for the for ABC News in London uh, told me he was quitting and said, if you would like to put in for my job, now's the time. So I applied for the job and I told ABC I'd be very cheap and that I had radio experience and they gave me a tryout and I got that job. And then um, ABC News at that time was incredibly uh, go-go news organization on foreign coverage. It was where they saw their chance to make their reputation. And I was there at that perfect time, and uh, all kinds of major stories happened in almost from the day I started um, to uh, things like the, the Iran hostage crisis broke open then, and the Falklands War broke open then, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, um, the fall of Eastern Europe. I, and I got to cover all of these stories as a very young person and not, not allowed to make mistakes anymore, but now I had such great uh, mentors and guide rails from, from the organization. And I, along the way, I switched over to television and ended up living in Moscow for ABC. And they put me through Russian school, and I lived in Jerusalem, and they put me through Arabic lessons, not school. And um, then I spent a lot of years in London before I came back uh, to the U.S. in the 90s. Then I came to Washington. That's when we first met and when I had a, mm-hmm. a disastrous year covering the White House under Bill Clinton. That did not work out. Um, Why was it disastrous? Um ABC, I, I, uh, ABC was interested in me as a, as a potential future star anchor kind of guy, and uh, and I was very interested in that. But part of the grooming process in those days was to uh, be the White House correspondent. That's not the case anymore, but that used to be the path. Like every anchor had gone through the White House, up through Brian Williams at NBC, and um, I didn't. I did not have. I did not have U.S. political coverage in my DNA. It's I was a, I was a really really good foreign correspondent, but I was not a very good political correspondent. To me, they're two very different sensibilities. One is as a foreign correspondent, you're motivated by curiosity and learning and openness and trying to understand. And your role, your responsibility back to your audience is to explain this world. And I was great at that. I I loved being out in the world and seeing these revolutions and the. Berlin Wall and all of that, and and taking it in and then digesting it and then translating it back home to my audience. Being a political correspondent in the Clinton White House was much more of a watchdog, you know, catch the guy, get the guy, hold his feet to the fire. It's just not my personality. And um, and it, I said that to ABC when they offered me the job. I said, I, I, you know, I, the other thing is that it's not it's not the case today but in back then i thought that american politics was really boring compared to the politics of the world that i had just been covering you know communism versus capitalism and the, you know the collapse and the crash of these systems and then you come back here and it's you know newt gingrich versus bill clinton just seemed to me very small potatoes so i didn't have that excitement about it and ABC needed me to have that excitement about it, and I didn't, and so it was just a bad mismatch. So that's, but that's when we met. Was I, you know, I got to meet you. That's right. I, I, I got to move to D.C., which I've stayed in and really have come to love as a community. And I, and in time, after spending most of my adult life at the, up to that point overseas and coming back almost as an expatriate, I've kind of caught up on U.S. politics. <laughs> and it's become way more interesting. So so let's talk about some of the debate formats. I want to share with you, this is the open of the most recent debate on MSNBC. Just get your reaction after we listen. We're in a battle for the soul of America. We're ready to build this majority. We need big ideas. 
fight that is born out of optimism. It is also about how we govern because we are one America. I'm talking about changing Washington. To restore the principles of integrity. Let's show them what we've got. Let's show them what humanity can do. The MSNBC Washington Post Democratic Presidential Debate. Live from Atlanta, Georgia. And the Tyler Perry Studios. Here is Rachel Mann. Wow. The, the music, the <laughs> In drama. In galaxy far, far away. Well, exactly. <laughs> what, what do you think? I mean, I'm okay with it. Uh, you know, I, but I, doesn't I, it seem like the start of Monday Night Football yeah, or something like that? It does. It does. But I'm, I'm just, you know, we... I mentioned before that our debates are set up as a competition, and that's controversial. And, and it's controversial because not every conversation should or needs to be a competition. But I, I do think that it, putting a competitive edge on things gives it a, a focus and a, a certain ex- electricity and excitement. And, um, uh, you know, it, it could be – they could have done it much straighter um, – and I still think that the audience would have watched. By the way, I, I, I think it's an unnecessary add-on, but I'm not. I'm not going to be too prudish about them putting a little bit of energy and excitement into it. I find it a little bit comical, but but I, I don't. I don't think it's harmful. We talked earlier about the role of the moderator, and this is one example. October sixteenth, two thousand twelve, CNN's Candy Crowley with then Governor Mitt Romney and President Barack Obama. I think it's interesting the president just said something which which is that on the day after the attack he went to the Rose Garden and said that this was an act of terror. You said in the Rose Garden the day after the attack it was an act of terror. It was not a spontaneous demonstration. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. I, I, I want to make sure we get that for the record because it took the president 14 days before he called the attack in Benghazi. An act of terror. Get the transcript. It, 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 he did, in, in fact, sir. So let me let me call it an act of Can terror. Can you say that a little louder, Candy? <laughs> so an example of fact checking in real time. What's the problem with that? I um, first of all, I want to declare myself a huge Candy Crowley fan. She got uh, a lot of criticism for that, though. She did, and I, I think that it's a hard call, but I come down on the side that she should not have done that. I've been asked about this before and I and I've been criticized for for not thinking that Candy should have done that and and the argument is that a journalist should not allow what he or she thinks is untruth to pass over the airwaves and and I get that argument as a moderator of debates though I've taken the position that the counter argument needs to come from the other debater not from a journalist on uh, who's who's in the middle? Not because I'm against fact checking per se, but I want the fact checking to come from the debater. I want the, the that's what I want the debaters to be very good at. Um, and and if you're wrong just a little bit, you're going to get in trouble. Right, and and it's very easy to be wrong just a little bit. I mean, there are people who can listen to that now and say Kenny was absolutely right, but there are people who listen to it and they say, but you didn't get what Romney was really getting at, and he he wasn't being so literal about it. And you end up you end up having an you end up becoming one of the debaters very easily by how you end up having an argument, and it takes time, etc. So, what I, I have been in situations like that, as in the Intelligence Squared setting, and what I'll do is I'll turn to the other side and I'll ask them a question that prompts them to to, to, to try to do the fact check. 
and if they fail, um, then I'm gonna then I will move on. Does that mean in the end that some falsehood came out? Y- yes, but but uh, potentially yes. But there's so much said in the course of a debate that I can't keep track in any case of how I'm sure that things have passed that were sort of glided over or ideas that were mushed together and when broken down might not be quite accurate. Um, but that's part of the skill of the debate um, for me. So my feeling is I'm not, you know, one of these uh, idealistic people about, you know, if you, you know, in, for example, on the Internet, or the, the crowdsourcing will always correct. I don't think that corrective measures always happen. But I do think that on the, on the whole over an hour and a half debate that um, a, a true, a truly meaningful misstatement is going to probably in all likelihood be corrected. Sometimes we, they're corrected by members of the audience, rarely, but that's what happens. But I, I don't think that the moderator should get into those sorts of arguments with the, with the uh, debaters. Two other recommendations. Professor Ethan Zuckerman saying pivot to video and Margaret Hoover, who is the host of PBS's Firing Line, says go deeper. Margaret has actually debated with us. Um, it was on the future of the Republican Party. She was a very, very good debater. Deb- go deeper is obvious. I mean, that's what I'm basically, I have been saying that for the last several minutes. Uh, that's the essence of what we do by going on one topic for an hour and a half. You just have to do that. Um, I'm not big on pivot to video at all. Um, I think words count. I think the ability of a candidate, in our case a debater, but a candidate to get up there and, and work with words and be persuasive with words and, and defend him, himself or herself, uh, uh, dismantle somebody else's argument with words is the way to do it. I'm not even sure what pivot to video means. Does that mean – Does that, what does that mean? Show, show, show video sh- clips? Show vid- That somebody should be showing – the debater should choose a set of video clips or – I just don't know what that actually means. So let me turn to another format, the town hall meeting, which began back in 1992, and your former colleague at ABC News, Jeff Greenfield, with this documentary that aired recently on PBS. We have a question right here. Yes, how has the national debt personally affected each of your lives? And if it hasn't, how can you honestly find a cure for the economic problems of the common people if you have no experience in what's ailing them? President George H.W. Bush was clearly confused by what she was asking. Well, I think the national debt affects everybody. She's saying you personally. On a personal basis, how has it affected you? Has it affected you personally? I'm not sure I get it. Help me with the question and I'll try to answer it. I've had friends that have been laid off from jobs. Tell me how it's affected you again. Um, You know people who've lost their jobs and lost their homes. Uh Bill Clinton, by contrast quickly reached out for a personal connection. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. The format, where candidates are unfettered by lecterns or tables, allow them much more movement. But this can be a double-edged sword. In 2000, Vice President Al Gore decided to move into Governor Bush's personal space, perhaps to create a sense of dominance. But watch. But can you get things done? And I believe I can. That nonverbal gesture proved to be the most memorable moment of the entire debate. John Donvan, what about the town hall meeting format? Um, I, I think it has, well, first of all, in terms of actually having a real debate unfold, I think it has the same problems I was describing with the larger system, although that problem becomes less and less and less the fewer candidates there are on stage. <clears throat> but the the innovation of the town hall format is questions from, uh, from citizens. And... Um, that's a tricky one too because the questions um, need to be 
really meaningful and um, to, to move things along, uh, to, to get to – and as I always say when I speak to our audience, I'd like you to ask a question that gets to the, the debaters to debate better with one another. That particular question um, didn't make sense. Um, the national debt did not have an impact – does not have an impact in any direct way on whether somebody's going to lose a job or not. And and the, the President Bush at the time, you know, was correct to literally say, can you clarify? And George, uh, Bill Clinton was Bill Clinton-y enough to grab the moment and feel her pain and, and run with that. Um, so did it really serve anything other than to show that Bill Clinton has better political instincts than George Bush? I don't think it does. Is that a good thing to have discovered? Sure. It, it worked in that sense. But did it did – it, did it really do that thing that we do in Intelligence Squared, which is give you that sense that I'm getting I'm getting to understand what this thing means. I'm going to be smarter when I walk out of here, and I'm going to feel good about that. No, I don't think it does. That said, I, I don't want to make the argument that every presidential debate should necessarily follow our format. The, 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 the limitation of our format is it's only one topic, and there is a sense that the audience – the, the, the electorate wants to have a broader sense of what candidates think about a wide range of things. So you can't do that with one topic. You get a completely different look at, a, at an individual by watching them debate one topic, but you don't get to see this broad, this broad viewpoint. Um, and the big question mark is whether or not President Trump will even participate in the debates. Well, I don't think any candidate would debate would participate in the kind of debate we're talking about. It takes too much work. It's too risky. You have to be. You you, you might really make a fool of yourself. You know the the oops moment that uh, Rick Perry had over something quite trivial. It was, it was, a, tri- it was a, a very trivial, you know, slip of the brain. He just couldn't remember the thing come to him, but he was crucified for that. If, if that's going to happen to somebody in a moment like that, if somebody really falls apart on a deep debate, that's a, such a huge risk. I'm, I'm skeptical. I would love it if, I would love it if, you know, Intelligence Squared could produce the presidential debates and we would use our system and we could amend it so that we do three resolutions over a night and they still have to you know devote 30 minutes instead of 90 minutes to the topic i would love that but i think you know we tried actually in 2016 we 15 16 we did a change.org campaign to you know adopt our model for the presidential debates and we we got you know people who know who we are going great that's a fantastic idea um, so we we got some traction on that, but I think the Presidential Debate Commission, as much as its members, some of whom I know and respect, are believe in that. And and just to explain, that's the commission that is is basically controlled by the two parties and controls the the, the location, the timing, and the format of the debates. Um, that commission, as much as its members are civic minded, high minded people, in the end, they're they have to do what the parties want to do. And the parties don't really want to change the system very much because they're used to it. It works to their benefit to have a format in which they don't really have to debate, in which the candidates can prepare by memorizing 30-second answers to everything and training themselves to pivot away from the question anyway and not really debate with anybody. So let me conclude with this question. What makes a good debate question or a good resolution? Really when do hard. you know you have something that works? That's a very, very hard challenge, and it's one that Intelligence Squared, we spend a huge amount of time on. We do, fif- we do about 15 to 17 debates a year, and we, we go through, I would say we throw out 80% of the possible ideas that we come up with. First of all, before getting to the literal language that we choose, we, we look to see is there, is there an issue out there that 
represents a meaningful a meaningful that, that represents a meaning di- meaningful dichotomy of views on something that's important or engaging. So very often somebody will say to me, you know, oh, you guys really should do something on infrastructure. That's an interesting and important topic, but we haven't figured out what the debate is. Like, who's who's what's the disagreement over infrastructure? Sure, there's probably going to be some sort of disagreement of maybe who should pay for it. But how interesting is an argument for over 90 minutes about who's going to int- pay for it? We all want good roads and good right, airlines right. and so terminals. Very often, yeah, often we hear, oh, you should do something on blah, blah, blah. And then my question is, what's the argument? And then people scratch their heads because it's very hard to find an argument. Not everything – not every uh, topic lends itself to a discourse that's framed as a debate. But once we do find something, and I, I can talk about the debate we did last week where the resolution was capitalism is a blessing. Um, that was much more – that was a much broader in scope debate than we normally do. We, we'll normally focus in on something that's a little bit more specific. But um, we, want, we felt that because uh, capitalism is being questioned more and more by younger generations and because we have serious candidates for the White House who are advocating alternatives to capitalism, that it was time to do something big on that. But the the phrasing initially we were thinking of doing the debate in a setting with um, with a particular divinity school as our setting, and so we wanted to bring in the idea came in. Let's not just talk about the material impact of capitalism, but can we explore the moral aspects of capitalism, and what language would suggest that? And so, rather than capitalism is good or capitalism has solved most of the world problems, all of which could have been resolutions we did. The language blessing was was included, and then it was explained to the debaters as they were being recruited and also to the audience on the night of the debate that we were intending actually to look at the question of whether uh, capitalism had imported had had delivered moral goods or or the opposite over its two hundred year history and so that 's an example where we and, and and we wanted to make sure that debaters would would argue that that there are are there smart people who have thought about this who really do believe that capitalism is a moral good do they have something to say about it are they just going to assert it or have they thought about it a lot have they thought about the counter arguments and will they be prepared to counter them and then on the opposite side the same thing are there are there people who would just who who really think that capitalism has been harmful morally and materially harmful and have they thought about it and have they written about it and made an argument then the question is will if you can get two sides to say, I will stand by this resolution or I will tear this resolution apart, then the last question is, will they go on a stage with each other? <laughs> will they dignify the other side? By and, and that's the beautiful thing is when they do, and we do it 15 to 17 times a year, but it takes, we have a very, very efficient and slim staff that, that work extremely hard constantly at looking at for what's out there in the atmosphere, what's to be discussed, and... Um, can we find the right people and will those people do the work and will those people team up with each other and oppose other people on the other side so it's a it's a very it's very very complicated but it all starts i mean you put your finger on it it starts with the resolution and we've done you know it's not always foreign policy we did one on uh, dating apps have destroyed romance was a debate we did we've done ban college football um so you know we we go into sports and 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 we've done Amazon is what was it? Amazon is good for the reader, which was a fantastic debate by the way um, about Amazon's control of 
basically control of the means of production and the marketplace uh, on the one hand. It was at the time when Amazon was controversially uh, having uh, public fights, uh, power struggles with publishing companies. But on the other hand, Amazon, the books get are really cheap and more people can read buy them and they give opportunities to unknown authors to self-publish so that was a really really uh good debate but it was it was it was more it ended up being about more than just about amazon we did one long live walmart where the resolution focused on whether the company walmart was a force for good or bad in, in all sorts of ways so we we look for um we we look for things that are have really are arguments that are really interesting that really matter that reveal once you start digging into them a lot more about themselves than just the resolution says on the surface and our listeners can follow all of this where iq2us.org as uh we're an, we're an app also on the apple store and uh, the android uh, the google play store uh, for android we have an app in all of our 170 debates are there and you can watch the video or you can listen to the podcast as well. And the surprising thing to me is I've been all over the country on book tour, not related to Intelligence Squared. And after I'm finished in the bookstores, people will come up to me and say, I was just listening to your debate on China's approach to capitalism while I was working out. And I say, <laughs> really? And they say, it was so interesting. And I think, okay. That's then we're succeeding if we made China's approach to capitalism interesting enough to work out to. And this has been a very interesting conversation. John Donvin, thanks for stopping by. Such a pleasure. Veteran Network correspondent. He is the host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And we thank you for listening. This podcast available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening. Did you know that C-SPAN regularly posts seven podcasts? They're available wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about all of our podcasts by visiting our webpage, cspan.org forward slash podcasts. We're always interested in hearing your feedback. Please email your feedback to podcasts at c-span.org.